Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everyone. A quick heads up. This episode deals with themes of racism and police violence. Earlier this year, people across the country took to the streets to demand justice for George Floyd, a black man killed by police in Minneapolis. Say his name! George Floyd! Who they kill? George Floyd! Who they kill? At a startling number of these protests, videos emerged of violent confrontations between police officers and protesters. Now, in many of those videos, the police are wearing body armor. They have weapons in hand. Guns, tasers, batons. They move with choreographed precision. They respond with an amount of force that, at least from what we can see in the videos, looks unwarranted. Seeing these videos got today's question asker, Blake Schmidt, wondering, how did our police come to look and act so much like the military. It seems like we just put this militarization in front and we say, you know, we're just gonna squash it with tear gas and force. Um, Clearly there's a lot of issues with doing that. Blake was doing some reading about the history of policing in America when he came across this guy from Berkeley, August Vollmer. Vollmer served as the town's first police chief, but he's known nationwide as the father of modern policing. Blake was surprised when he read about Vollmer. Could someone from liberal Berkeley be responsible for the tactics that we see police use today? Who's August Vollmer, and is Berkeley responsible for the modern police force? On today's episode, we explore where the militarization of police began. And we'll take a closer look at a man who many revere for his contributions to policing, but whose innovations have a darker side, too. I'm Olivia Allen Price. This is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randa Adir Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Bay Curious producer Katrina Schwartz has been digging into August Vollmer's life and legacy. And like most people, he was pretty complicated. He's yet another historical figure who did some important things alongside some bad ones. To understand the huge impact August Vollmer had on policing later in his life, we need to explore the experiences that shaped him. Vollmer was born in New Orleans, but moved with his family to Berkeley in 1890. Towards the end of that decade, he went off to fight in the Spanish-American War in the Philippines. What he saw there during his military service would change his life and career. August Vollmer, after he got out of the Army, came to Berkeley where his mom was living. This is Michael Holland, a retired Berkeley police officer, now historian for the department. Vollmer became a mail carrier. One day while he was delivering the mail, Vollmer saw a neglected flatbed railroad car crashing down Shattuck Avenue towards a crowd of people waiting at the train station. He ran, jumped on the car, and stopped it. He kind of like, with that, built a little reputation. This was 1904. Vollmer's bravery won him some attention from town notables who convinced him to run for town marshal, the top cop in Berkeley at the time. The powers that be were looking at trying to deal with all the crime that was occurring in the area, both in Oakland and Berkeley, and was looking for someone that uh, they felt uh, had the fortitude, the stamina, uh, the willpower to maybe have a dent in all that. Later, Vollmer convinced Berkeley to make him its first police chief. But policing itself was not what we think of today, says Perfecta Oxholm, a public policy doctoral student at UC Berkeley who studies policing. It's called the political era of policing. There's a lot of patronage. There's a lot of corruption in the police force. Oxholm says Vollmer became the head of Berkeley's police department at a time in the country's history when police basically did what the mayor told them, including breaking up strikes or dragging people to the polls to vote. Whole entire police departments are sort of beholden to certain mayors or certain political parties. And when that changes, the whole entire police department goes. Police often took bribes. They weren't very well educated. They beat up people they detained. Vollmer didn't stand for any of that. That's why he's so famous in policing circles now. He started reforming his little Berkeley department 20 years before it became common across the country. He institutes training academies. He very much values formal education for police officers, where before that it wasn't a part of the job requirements. Um, A lot more of a reliance on sort of a systematic process for identifying and, you know, determining crime, Um, although still within the sort of this legal framework that certain groups were being criminalized. And then also kind of like technological advancements. We're going to come back to that idea of who was considered a criminal in a minute. We had a great many uh, daylight burglaries. The thief would come over from San Francisco. William Dean was a patrol cop on Vollmer's force in the 1920s. The Bancroft Library interviewed him for a project on Vollmer's legacy. 
Dean says Vollmer was one of the first people to use crime mapping, a tactic he learned in the military, to decide where to send his men. But he had planned to have a mobile force that he could use where he needed. He planned ahead. A squad of officers, first on bikes and later in cars, who could be moved to hotspot crime areas. It was new stuff back then, and the beginning of over-policing areas considered to be high crime. Vollmer was full of new ideas, all aimed at professionalizing police work. He used Berkeley as a test case, and then he spread his ideas to police departments all over the country. He, he was news. Rose Glavinovich reported on the Berkeley police for the Oakland Tribune at the time. He was very conscious of the value of publicity, not as personal publicity, for the ideas and the ideals he had in police work. Glavinovich says Vollmer allowed journalists on the crime beat like her to work out of the Berkeley police station with free access to its files. Vollmer knew that if he wanted his ideas to spread, he needed press coverage. You see, he is responsible for raising the standards throughout the country. These reforms Vollmer made effectively ended the political era of policing in Berkeley and ushered in the next phase, known as the professional era. And by all accounts, Vollmer was a decent man who treated all types of people with respect. He was even progressive for his time. But we can't ignore the darker history of policing as a whole, or the fact that Vollmer's innovations all came from his time in the military during the Spanish-American War. Okay, a quick history refresher. After the U.S. military drove the Spanish out of the Philippines in 1899, they decided to take over the country themselves. But the Filipino people didn't want to be colonial subjects of the U.S. They basically fought a war of independence, think American Revolution against England, but with Filipinos and the United States being the big bad guy. Julian Goh is a sociologist at the University of Chicago, studying American imperialism. You know, the Filipino insurgents were out in the jungles and in, in the plains. They were hidden away in the vast territory of central Luzon in the Philippines. Um, and they had to create these small mobile units whereby they could go hunt down um, and, and defeat these insurgents. Go got interested in Vollmer because so many of Vollmer's ideas to improve policing in Berkeley came straight out of his military playbook. At the exact same time Vollmer was professionalizing policing, he was helping to bake in a militaristic mindset to the force. Vollmer took that same idea and said, you know, criminals are kind of like Filipino insurgents. They're sort of hidden throughout the city. There's going to be outbreaks. And, and just as we did in the Philippines, we have to concentrate our force and quickly mobilize to these areas. That's exactly the tactic patrolman William Dean was praising earlier. The training academies, ranks, and crime mapping all came from the military, too. Julian Goh says these innovations weren't just tactical improvements. They were based in racism. The justification for U.S. colonialism was racialized. It was that whites are superior to non-whites. The Filipinos are rebellious children. They are violent. They're prone to criminality. Now, when Vollmer applies these tactics to the U.S., the group of people that he thinks about when he's thinking about criminals are not white criminals. 
In Berkeley, in the early 20th century, white Californians treated Chinese people badly, passing laws requiring special licenses for businesses typically run by Chinese entrepreneurs and preventing them from becoming citizens. The environment for legal work was so restrictive, some Chinese people found it easier to make a living in explicitly illegal businesses, like gambling parlors and opium dens. And one of his friends in the historical record I found, um, one of his friends said, you know, Gus, you should become a, uh, the police chief here because we've got all these Chinese that need to be dealt with, and you are very good at fighting the Gugus over there in, Philippine, in the Philippines. The Gugus was the derogatory term that they used. So there was a racial element from the get-go with Vollmer's tenure as, as police chief. Perfecta Oxholm points out police in America have always existed to exert control over marginalized groups, starting with Jamestown and Plymouth when European settlers first came to America. Back then, policing was more like ranging. This is essentially border patrol. So it was the displacement of native populations and the protection of the colony's boundaries, and then ranging out farther and farther into native lands and um, engaging in genocidal practices. She says policing has always been regional and about maintaining power. For a long time, the only form of policing in the South, for example, was slave patrols, white people controlling black people. When immigrants from Germany and Ireland immigrated to cities in the Northeast in the mid-19th century, they were not considered white. They're bringing with them sort of cultural practices around alcohol consumption that are very different from the previous waves of European immigration. And people in power didn't like it, so they passed laws to criminalize alcohol. Since police forces were created in the United States, really there's been a model for the white population or the population that would come to know itself as white and then the racialized other. And that group is different in every location. The police exist to enforce the laws society passes. And Oxholm says many of those laws throughout American history have been written to control non-white people. What Vollmer did is just continue that model with new means. It's a pattern, it's recurrent, it's about race, it's about empire, it's about colonialism, and it's, it's baked into our history. Katrina, Blake's question was about whether we can trace modern police practices all the way back to Vollmer, and it seems like the answer is sort of. What do you think? Well, the biggest thing that he brought, I think, was this military mindset, the idea that the police are in an us versus them situation with citizens. And this is something that Julian Goh really helped me understand. So when we talk about police militarization today, we often think of, oh, they have tanks. But militarization also refers to the adoption of tactics and operations and with it this mindset, right, a military mindset. This notion that the citizen is the enemy, right, and that danger lurks everywhere. I mean, this is a, a, a military mentality that is, is part of police militarization just as much as the use of military hardware and tanks. So Vollmer may not have come up with tear gas, but he certainly supported technological advancements. He believed the military was a good model for policing, and he systematized those beliefs. So everybody who came after him kind of built on the foundations that he started. And it seems like how we view who Vollmer was as a person has changed over time. 
Yeah, so on the one hand, Vollmer helped end the political era of policing and cut down on corruption within the force. But he worked in a racist system, and he helped make it more systematic, more respected. I mean, he believed in eugenics, which is a totally debunked idea that some groups are genetically inferior. And he taught that in the criminology department that he helped start at UC Berkeley. He also started this idea of over-policing so-called high-crime neighborhoods, which we see a lot of today. It's a mixed bag because the folks who left records of Volmer say that he was a stand-up guy, that he was progressive even for his time. But when we look back at it, there are all these things that kind of point to a darker history. We're in this moment culturally where we're looking at these people who have been revered for a really long time. But now that we're taking an honest look at every part of who they were, it's just a little bit more complicated. And I think given the modern lens that we're looking through, we just don't like all of what we see. There's a peak in the East Bay Hills that's actually named for Volmer, but that could change soon. The Berkeley City Council recently asked the East Bay Parks District to rename it because of Volmer's involvement in eugenics. Hmm. We'll have to keep an eye on that one. Thanks, Katrina. My pleasure. If you want to learn more about Volmer's contributions to policing, check out our story online at baycurious.org. It has tons of archival photos of Volmer and Berkeley's early police department. Thanks to Blake Schmidt for asking this week's question. Bay Curious is produced by Katrina Schwartz, Rob Spate, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Bay Curious is produced at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's Trivia Game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.